0: Um, we're going to need to have better public transportation if we keep growing like this, because it's just
1: not, I mean, uh, driving I is not as feasible anymore.
0: <laughs> and to, for me to take a bus, which my company provides a free pass for, it takes about an hour and 45 minutes and three buses from where we live. This is Seattle Growth Podcast. I'm Jeff Schulman, and today we are going to look at how growth is impacting transportation and mobility. We will look at land transportation through an in-depth interview with the director of the Seattle Department of Transportation, Scott Kubley. He will share details about the projects underway and what he sees for the future of how Seattle residents will move about the city. We will also look at air transportation through an in-depth interview with Port of Seattle Commissioner John Creighton. He will share the fascinating history and future of the Port of Seattle. In between, you will hear from the editor-in-chief of the Seattle Transit blog, Martin Duke. This episode will give you unique insight into the far-reaching impact of how growth affects the city's transportation network and what the future holds for Seattle mobility. Before we begin, it is my pleasure to announce a Seattle Growth Podcast live event at the Impact Hub Seattle that will take place on Monday, October 17th. I will be moderating a diverse and interesting panel of community and civic leaders and a live discussion about Seattle's future. The event is being sponsored by the University of Washington's Burke Center for Entrepreneurship, and there will be hors d'oeuvres, drinks, and a lively discussion. Check out seattlegrowthpodcast.com backslash live for more details. This is an event that you will not want to miss. Tickets are expected to sell out quickly, so act now. I hope to see you there. And now, let's talk transportation. As I set out on the journey of Seattle Growth Podcast. Transportation came up in nearly every one of my roughly 100 interviews. Longtime resident Leslie Basil recounted her impression of how traffic used to be.
2: Back in 1992, it was only really heavy traffic during a Husky game.
0: Fast forward to 2016, stories like the following from Natalie are not uncommon. I have a pretty brutal commute. <laughs> in the morning, it probably only takes about a half an hour, but in the afternoon, I'm like upwards of an hour or more. Uh, I spend a lot of time in my car. <laughs> and residents such as Dan Morgan have opinions on how well the infrastructure has kept up with the population growth. You know, traffic's horrible.
1: <laughs> I think that uh, there's been such an increase in population that our infrastructure just hasn't really been able to keep up with it. I think, you know, our mass transit is, uh, is way behind where it should be for how many people are now living here. And that goes with parking, traffic. And there aren't a lot of good alternatives for uh, public transportation. I mean, I think they're trying. Um, it's just way behind, especially when it comes to getting to neighborhoods outside of the city, you know, or the east side. Um, it's pretty much you have to drive. Rishi Matthew, co-founder of the startup Keep,
0: describes the drive he takes commuting from the east side to his co-working space at Startup Hall in Seattle's University District.
1: Uh, in the mornings, it takes me an hour and 15 minutes. Uh, in the evenings, on the way back, it takes me about 37 minutes. It There are multiple choke points. So right where uh, all the Microsoft employees exit I-90, that, that's a big choke point choke point. The bridge, uh, the I-90 bridge is, is a big choke point. Uh, the I-90 transfer to I-5 is a big choke point. The I-5 uh, exit to uh, the university is a big choke point. So there are like four choke points that I go through every day. I tend to get lucky in like one out of four, but most of the time it you will hit at least three out of four. Some residents, like Zach,
0: change their routine in response to traffic concerns.
1: Yeah, so if I'm at home at around... Four to five, six rush hour times. I won't even attempt to leave my house because uh, I, I, my house is situated in between I-5 and I-99, and, uh, 99, and uh, it's not even worth the attempt leaving. I'll, uh, I'll be I'll be trapped on side roads. No matter which way I attempt to go, I'll just
0: stay home. But more than a simple inconvenience people described a far-reaching impact of a strain on the city's transportation network. Seattle Fire Chief Harold Scoggins described in Episode 7 an effect on emergency services.
3: There can be challenges, obviously, as if any area becomes more densely
0: populated, that slows down our travel time on the streets. Um, it could create a few challenges on um, you know, even going down some of the streets in the residential area. Though slower travel times for first responders may appear innocuous, a delay in receiving medical attention can be the difference between life and death. I asked Dr. Susan Stern to describe what delaying care means for a heart attack patient.
1: We, we have the saying that is called t- time is muscle um, because the heart is a muscle. And so every bit of delay, it means an area of the heart is not getting enough blood flow. Uh, you risk death of heart muscle. And so your quality of life can be affected, and of course you can actually die from that.
0: A strain on the city's transportation network also has consequences for our environment, as described by Seattle Aquarium Conservation Coordinator Mark Plunkett. And how we drive makes a difference, or how we are mobile around the Puget
3: Sound area, and that's particularly relevant to climate change and ocean acidification. The Puget Sound uh, pH is higher than it has been in the recent last couple of hundred years uh, by estimates. And uh, this is already causing an impact upon plankton and shellfish and others. And so
0: looking for more efficient means of uh, mobility. These are all contributions to the success of managing Puget Sound. Brian Bonlander, a member of Governor Jay Inslee's cabinet, who you will hear more from later in the season. Describes how a strain on the city's transportation network affects the state of Washington.
1: Right now, the,
2: the ports here are an outlet for our agriculture uh, products coming out of eastern Washington. If we uh, if we continue to have difficulties with our transportation system, or if they get markedly worse, then that asset at some point is going to be diminished and perhaps even becomes a liability. And so, so there are challenges associated with this growth that could affect
1: other parts of the state um, in, a, in an adverse way, and we, we need to be, uh,
0: be mindful of those. Nicole Bell, Executive Director of Healthcare Innovation Hub Cambia Grove, noted an effect on the innovation ecosystem.
1: Uh, one of the key things that we see is that we're vastly under networked. And that probably applies to many industries, not just healthcare, but other places like Silicon Valley and like, um, Nashville, Tennessee, which is today's economic leader of healthcare. It's very routine to meet around the table with a young business if you're a healthcare leader. If people don't feel that they can go to a place where they can meet up because they can't park and they can't get there on time and they can't make it around town, they're just not going to go.
0: Workers and small business owners are also affected by the strain on the transportation system, as Steve Smith describes. It's, it's changed. It's been a little bit tougher. Um, tougher being traffic. I have a lot less places to park if I work in the inner city. Parking's a huge issue. Um, a lot of my operation costs will actually go to uh,
2: parking in the greater Seattle area or uh,
0: uh, tolls. In the previous episode, examining the effect of growth on schools, Kirk Wohlers, former president of the Garfield PTSA, described how the transportation network affects
2: school children. From Ballard or from the North End, you know, they might be an hour and 45 minutes. But, you know, it could be a dramatic commute on the buses. And you've got the buses trying to get workers downtown. So, so this whole idea of, of getting to school has become a bigger issue with the growth. So that's a, that's a big problem. Thus, the
0: transportation system's ability to accommodate the growth in the city does not just affect those who commute regularly, it affects the state of Washington and anyone who lives or works in the city. And as we look to the future, city council member Shama Sawant, who you heard in episode four about renting in Seattle, has an opinion on the metric by which the transportation system should be judged.
3: Think of a single mom who has to wake up every morning, early every morning, make breakfast for her kids, drop her kids off at school, or see them off at the bus stop, you know, school bus stop, go to work, uh, you know, get out of work in the evening, pick her kids up, go to the grocery store, come home, make dinner, supervise our kids' homework, put them to bed, and do all of that over, all over again the next day. If she, if this single mom can do all of this without having to own a car, then we would have arrived. Meaning no 40-minute waits, no three buses to get to work.
0: And though many would argue the city is not there yet. Many people commented on the extension of light rail. People such as interim executive director of UW Medical Center, Jeff Austin, who you heard from in Episode 8 about the city's healthcare system. Commuting north from
2: Tukwila or even Columbia City and other areas uh, has gotten tremendously better, and our employees really, really appreciate that. And, and that's been a, a
0: boon to uh, our employees as well as patients, uh, frankly. Um, And the extension of that going forward in the future is going to make a huge difference for the university as a whole, as well as for what we're trying to do here. To get a better understanding of how transportation will change in light of the economic and population growth, I sat down with the director of Seattle Department of Transportation. I am here at Seattle Municipal Tower with the Director of Seattle Department of Transportation, Scott Kubley. Scott, thank you for joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So let's start off and talk about what are some exciting things and initiatives going on at the Seattle Department of Transportation?
3: Uh, we have a lot of, lot of exciting things going on. We just passed a $930 million levy, or the voters of Seattle just passed a $930 million levy in November. And we are focused right now on gearing up to deliver on that and what's really exciting about that levy is it wasn't just paving streets and trimming trees but it was really a lot of transformative projects that I think reflected what Seattle residents want to see in their city.
0: What kind of changes specifically do you see in these next
3: five years as you start to spend Uh, that levy? Big investments in transit Uh, Seven new rapid ride corridors. Uh, We're working on one of the big ones that's going on right now is a BRT project, a bus rapid transit project on Madison. Uh, Big investments in pedestrian improvements. So new sidewalks, improved pedestrian crossings of arterials, projects like that. Investments in our bike network, so we have protected bike lanes that actually make all users safer, whether you're on a bike, walking, or or driving a car. Everybody benefits from those types of improvements. Just a whole host of different improvements. We also have non-levy funded projects that we're going to be working on. We have the Center City Streetcar, which will connect the First Hill Streetcar and the South Lake Union Streetcar and create a great transit uh distributor in downtown connecting to light rail at three different stations
0: there is a ton of stuff going on what would you say is going to be the most immediate that's going to impact the lives of residents or people working in seattle as fast as possible
3: what's the what's the most immediate improvements i think are the changes that we're making to the transit network you can see a big improvement a big change that happened just last this last march like a month and a half ago we extended the rapid ride c line that goes from west seattle uh, into downtown we actually extended it into south lake union and we took the d line uh, which normally got on the viaduct at around columbia i believe and it now goes into pioneer square and just those two changes and then we put dedicated transit lanes on west lake uh, at the same time, so that the C line could move faster, the C line saw a 21 percent increase in ridership year over year. The D line saw a 26 percent increase in ridership, and the streetcar, which uses those same dedicated transit lanes on Westlake, is going about 15 to 20 percent faster and operating more reliably. All, all, just one simple project—not simple, one complicated project that you know. Was a seemingly simple change, but had a big impact in the way people get to and from South Lake Union, to and
0: from Pioneer Square. As we continue to grow at, at such a rapid pace, what keeps you up at night with regards to serving the people of Seattle? I think it
3: is that growth. Uh, we're the, one of the fastest growing cities in the country. Some years we're the fastest, some years we're second or third. There's a really important distinction to the type of growth that we're seeing, which is we're fully built out urbanized city. And so all of our growth is infill. Whereas if you look at a city like Austin, they're still growing out, not just up. So even when they're growing faster, it's not the same kind of fast. It's not as intense uh, in the community. And so what keeps me up at night is just, you know, anytime you have this much change, uh, and growth in the city. It creates a lot of anxiety with, with the people living there. And I think that we need to figure out how we can commu- communicate the work that we're doing to the people that live here so that they understand how we're trying to help, the, help make this future that everybody, or many people are excited about, how we actually are gonna help make it work.
0: Going to that infill that you speak of, some of the ideas in place are to put more density in these residential neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. So that means putting more density, more cars and people on 25-foot wide streets. What changes, if any, do you see happening to those streets? Well one of the things that i would say is that
3: we're looking for more we're looking at more people coming into these neighborhoods not necessarily more cars what we've rolled out uh two point to point free floating car share companies reach now and car to go uh they have about 1100 cars on the street right now between the two of them 80,000 seattleites have joined those services and around 7000 of them have sold their cars and so We're adding people, but not necessarily cars, one. Two, I think those 25-foot streets are a huge asset for Seattle, and having two-way traffic on those streets is a huge asset. Because one of the things that people may not recognize or realize about Seattle is we have consistently, year after year, the safest streets in the country uh, in terms of the number of fatalities, serious crashes and fatalities uh, per capita in the country. Uh, Seattle and Boston generally go back and forth as to who is the lowest crash rate. And a big function of that is our low-speed, non-arterial streets. And you can't drive fast when there's two-way traffic on a, on a 25-foot street with parking on both sides. So I actually think it's a real benefit. When Seattleites voted on the levy, one of the biggest priorities they had was Safety. And when PSRC did a survey, and it was reported in the Seattle Times, on why people chose the neighborhoods that they chose to live in, the number one reason for Seattleites in the center part of Seattle was walkability, even above affordability. When you went outside of central Seattle into sort of the northern and southern parts of the city, the number one priority was affordability, and the number two priority was walkability. So they kind of flipped. But over and over, when we we're putting together the levy, over and over, you know, when we hear from people, it's about improving walkability, and so having low-speed, non-arterial streets really uh, helps that. And it's also part of what's a, that walkability is part of what's attracting people to live in the denser neighborhoods. So I don't think we want to do too much to change those those narrow streets.
0: Any changes that would be made to help in terms of the traffic? So if if not cars, it might be bicycle or pedestrian. And bus as well. So one of the
3: things about Seattle, we have this fantastic bus system that I think it's probably among Seattle's pure cities. Peer cities, We have uh, one of the best bus systems out there. Uh, we're doing a lot of work around dedicated bus lanes. Q jumps, which are the signals that allow the bus to get going first. It gives it a little green light and allows it to get going first so it can get out ahead of traffic. We have all these different investments that we're making that help buses move better so that people are more inclined to take them. Because at the end of the day, there's gonna be a lot of people that have to drive places. right? If you're a realtor, you've gotta show up to a showing. If you're a plumber, you need somewhere to carry your tools, the bus probably isn't gonna work for you. Those folks are gonna to have to drive. And so what we wanna do with our bus network is, is do everything we can to make it so that people, as many people as we can, want to take the bus and hop on the bus. And that's really, as we grow, the thing that's gonna make our transportation system work and investing in other things like bicycle facilities and pedestrian facilities are sort of the the thing that takes it over the top but we need to create opportunities for people to to make choices for the mode that works best for them
0: do you see any changes to the restricted parking zone program
3: we're currently evaluating restricted parking zones the rpz program uh looking at how do we reflect growing demand for those permits? And how do we distribute them in an equitable way? So it's something that we're absolutely looking at. Uh, it's particularly uh, relevant in some of the higher density neighborhoods. Uh, so like Capitol Hill is, is one that we're looking at, uh, where there's a lot of people that have uh, applied for residential uh, or restricted parking zones. And what we'd like to do is figure out how do we lower the number of people that are wanting restricted parking because they're using other options to get around, whether it's car to go or Reach Now, or Uber or Lyft or taxis or the bus or walking or biking. And that way, there's less demand for parking.
0: Are there any initiatives underway in the meantime while we wait for the, to ease the demand for parking to make it available to people who need it, as you said, real estate agents, construction workers? And so yeah. On? So
3: that's, I mean, that's, you're seeing it as the city is, uh, the city is growing uh, faster than the number of cars are growing uh, we're rolling out programs like car to go and Reach Now, so that uh, when people, uh, when their car dies and they need to buy a new car, maybe they can look at one of these services and decide whether they want to buy a, a new car or not. Or uh, if you're moving to the city, maybe you'd say, you know, I'm moving here from, you know, Boise. I'm not going to need a car. I'm going to leave it uh, in my hometown. It's all these different services out there, the transit services, the car-sharing services, the ride-sharing services that are going to allow people uh, to get around. We're also making big investments in Sound Transit 3. Uh, So Northgate is going to open in, I believe, 2020 or 2021, and then to Linwood in 2023 and East Link in 2023. So I think the future is really bright because we're making the right investments in transit. We're making the right policy decisions or, or policy Uh, changes around allowing new mobility services so that people can have the benefits of living in dense, walkable neighborhoods, but minimizing the mobility pain people are feeling.
0: What kind of priority is given to protecting the port and the shipping industry here in Seattle in light of the congestion that's on the streets? We're
3: continuing to make uh, investments in our freight network. One of the things that the levy included was funding for a freight spot improvement program, and that's simple things like paving uh, areas where you know, there's a lot of truck traffic if there's damaged pavement. Uh, where the levy also had funding in it for the Lander Street overpass, which would help connect the port to Soto, reduce a lot of delay that's caused by freight trains that are coming through Soto, and then uh, investing in our heavy haul network As well. That's something that was critical to the port, and we've uh, come forward and designated a heavy haul network. And lastly, uh, the levy funds the rebuild of East Marginal Way, which again is another critical freight street for the port. And lastly, Sorry. Lastly, just so that everybody understands that we are focused on on our port and our maritime industry and our and just our general industry, is we are uh, in the process of finalizing our freight master plan. And that's going to be going out for public comment in the next couple of weeks.
0: According to the INRIX traffic scorecard, Seattle ranked sixth in hours wasted. So that's the sixth most hours wasted in traffic, which is worse than notorious cities such as Atlanta and Chicago. Why do you think that is? Well, I think Inrix is measuring
3: vehicle delay, not human delay, and that's I think one of the one of the things that we think about here in Sdot is multi. We think about things in multimodal ways. So, if somebody is stuck in traffic, that's a person stuck in traffic, but we're, there are also buses uh, that get stuck in traffic. And so, what we're doing is we're investing in our transit network because that's the most efficient way for us to carry people. The NRIX data is for the entire Puget Sound region, uh, not just the city of Seattle, so it includes what's happening on 405. But here in the city, what we're investing in is light rail, uh, streetcar, bus transit, making right-of-way improvements so the buses move faster so that uh, people can get where they need to go. And you see it in the results, Seattle has Only 30% of people coming into the center city drive alone. 31% of people coming into the center city drive alone. And that's because we have a really good bus network. Uh, We encourage van pools. We have a really good travel demand management program that that helps people uh, identify and use modes other than driving alone.
0: And if you could get a message out to the people who are frustrated with the amount of time that they personally feel they're spending in traffic, what would you tell them?
3: Well, what I would say is you know, try the bus. Try taking a bus because you know, taking a bus now is very different than taking a bus 15 years ago. 15 years ago, you're sitting on a bus. It's pre-smartphone. You're just sitting on a bus. Now, if you're sitting on a bus, you have a smartphone with you. You can read the internet, you can text, you can catch up with friends. The time that you're spending commuting can be used for other purposes when you're not driving. So if you're, if you're driving, you're stuck in traffic, I just encourage people, try the bus a couple times. Try light rail if you have light rail access.
0: And then for the people who are frustrated with their ability to park uh, when, you know, like the realtors, the construction workers, the people who can't just say, well, I'm not uh, going to drive. uh, What would you tell them about uh, either a message of what they can do or a message of what you're doing to help them? I think what we're doing to help those folks
3: is trying to make our transit system as effective as it can be, trying to get more people walking and biking. Because ultimately, we live in a built environment in which we're not gonna be widening our streets. But we're also gonna be growing, and that's a good thing. That's not a, it's not a bad thing that we're growing, it's a good thing. Uh, our neighborhoods are more vibrant, we can walk to more things, and we can get groceries closer to home. So if I'm those people that have to drive, I would be as supportive as I could of the city's investments in transit because ultimately it's going it's not about, you may not be able to get out of your car, but the person stuck behind you or stuck in front of you or
0: stuck to your side might be able. Going back to, to growth, what challenges does it present uh, to the Seattle Department of Transportation beyond just congestion on the roads? One of the
3: biggest challenges is just around construction management. So there's so much construction happening in the city that we need to be able to keep sidewalks open, travel lanes open, bike lanes open or give good detour routes for folks. We need to make sure that they're safe so that uh, so that people, if they do have to detour, aren't walking out in the middle of traffic to get around a construction site. We also need to make sure that we are issuing people permits to work in the right of way quickly. So if you're building a building, you need to pull permits to do electrical work, water work, cable, internet, you need to get permits from SDOT. And so we need to make sure that we're permitting that, those utility cuts quickly. We need to make sure that they're getting repaired well. So it's, there's, there's a lot of different ways growth impacts us beyond just moving people. Any ways that the economic growth affects your organization? Affordability is a huge, huge issue in every American city, or not every American city, but a lot of American cities, particularly coastal ones. We as the DOT can't do a lot to make rents lower. But affordability is a huge priority for our mayor. And transportation is about 17% of that average household's out-of-pocket income. To the extent that we can give people choices other than driving alone, which is the most expensive way to get around is if you have to own a car. So what we want to do is create a transportation ecosystem where people don't have to own a car so that uh, moving around the city is a lot more affordable. uh, And maybe that helps folks deal with you know, issues around rising rent. And what about attracting
0: and retaining talent?
3: You know, it's very interesting. When I started my career, transportation was not an uh, incredibly hot area. And then sometime in the mid 2000s, uh, there was an ex- or even the late aughts, right? So 2009, 10, 11, there was this just explosion in technology. And I would say it's not about attracting and retaining because i just think there are more people getting into transportation than there ever have been but they're going into lots of different places i think our biggest challenge from a human resource standpoint is so much of our world was built on moving slowly right you don't want to rush a bridge you want to design it so that it lasts a long time and you don't want to cut corners you want to make sure you you're designing it well uh When you're paving a street it's built to last 75 years so you wanna take your time and do it right. But these new transportation services are move so rapidly and they change so rapidly that we need to build an organization that can move really fast on some things and take our time on others, you know, take our time and make sure that we're doing the job right. And so it's building an organization that's comfortable having two types of cultures I think is a real challenge. I think it's a challenge so much of improving operations right now is around how we use data. And so it's very difficult, I think, right now for cities to attract data scientists, because that's really what we need. Because those data scientists are going to Google. Apple just invested in the Chinese uh, competitor to Uber, so even Apple's getting into mobility now. We have historically not had data scientists, but we need them, but those are the companies that we would be competing against to attract and retain them, I and that's that's something that's not just happening in a growing city, that's actually just something that's happening in the whole industry.
0: What is at the forefront of your mind as you're dealing with the challenges associated with growth uh, here in Seattle? I think the biggest challenge that I that I think we as an organization
3: have is is uh, communicating clearly what we're doing and why we're doing it. Because anytime you're in a high growth environment, uh, anxieties are high, uh, people see their commute time getting longer, or they see their neighborhood changing, and then other change, any change, seems scary, and especially if it's not clearly communicated. And so I think that's our biggest challenge. And I think that, you know, governments historically have had trouble clearly communicating why they're doing what they're doing and explaining what the impact on people's lives is going to be.
0: Do you have any other concluding thoughts about uh, the challenges you're facing and how well you feel you're addressing them and what you see for the future of Seattle? Well, I think the future of Seattle is really, really bright. And I think you see
3: that through the growth. People are moving here because they're excited to be here. I've lived in cities that were growing. I've lived in cities that were shrinking. I've lived in cities that are stagnant, and I can assure you that living in a growing city is a much nicer experience than living in a stagnant city or a shrinking city.
0: Thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. Yes, my pleasure. Still to come in this episode, a Port of Seattle commissioner talks about how growth is affecting air travel. But first, for a resident's perspective on the future of Seattle transportation, I met with the editor-in-chief of Seattle Transit Blog. I am here at the University Street Transit Station with Martin Duke. Martin,
1: thank you for joining me today. Happy to be here. So, Martin, why don't you tell me a little bit about the Seattle Transit Blog? Uh, Seattle Transit Blog has been around since about 2007. It was originally founded to advocate for the first try to pass Sound Transit 2, which failed, and uh, stuck around to pass the successful Sound Transit 2 in 2008, and since then has branched into general coverage of transit and land use in the greater Seattle region. And what motivates you to serve as the editor in chief of Seattle Transit Blog? Well, uh, both I and the other people that volunteer their time on the blog uh, find these issues very interesting and get some reward out of just making small improvements in the system and small improvements in proposals that occur. As the city has grown, in your assessment, how well has the transportation network kept up? Well, I think infrastructure projects take a long time, and so. Um, It's lagging a bit, but uh, certainly the efforts to build more grade-separated high-capacity transit, that is light rail, um, the the measures have been coming pretty fast and furious and it takes a long time to plan and build these things and pay for them, but uh, slowly but surely we're building the infrastructure to catch up with the growth that we're seeing. And why are you passionate about transit in particular? Well, I, I think there's a lot of reasons that transit is important. I think it matters a lot for the health of the environment. I think it matters a lot for public health. And I also think growth and density are really important, possibly more important for those causes. And transit enables, high quality transit enables that growth. And as you look to the future, and Seattle is anticipated to continue to grow in population numbers, mm-hmm. what do you see as the key priorities as it relates to the transportation network? Well, I think um, transit can do a couple things. Number one, it can conserve existing growth. Again, the, the key here is is real traffic separation and high-quality transit can carry a lot of people efficiently, uh, but, which in our region usually means light rail. Um, a common refrain we have on why a neighborhood can't accept growth is that the transit infrastructure can't keep up or that if there is additional traffic, it, the buses will be stuck in the same traffic, which is often true. But by, by building transits completely separate from traffic, whether it be a bus in a dedicated lane or um, light rail, then that really removes that rhetorical problem with transit, with, uh, with growth, rather. And also, just from and, and beyond just rhetoric, any large, dense city, any city bigger and denser than us, has realized that you must have high-quality, traffic-separated transit to function, and we're finally getting there.
0: And what has the opening of the light rail between
1: University of Washington and Capitol Hill, what do you feel that adds to the community? I think it's really raised the visibility of the project. I live in Rainier Valley, which is light rail, and it had light rail now for seven years or so. And, you know, it's transformed the way that people think about the city down there. As you add stations, you just multiply the trip pairs that people can make, and there are just more people that have a reason to use it and to experience it and find out how great it is, and then they want more.
0: How would you compare transit investment
1: relative to maybe private investment in autonomous cars? Well, I think um, there are people who say that autonomous cars will replace transit, and I think that's a way too simplistic way to look at it. I mean, I think there are a lot of regulatory issues, technological issues, which we shouldn't gloss over, but assuming they eventually work those out, there's a fundamental geometry problem in in dense center cities, where just the space that a car takes up uh, is just too much compared to the space that a passenger takes up on a on transit vehicle or as a pedestrian. So I think there will always be a place for traditional transit in high density areas. You know, I think there's multiple sides to this coin. and It's not a simple thing of just everyone getting in a car someday. That's not realistic. If you can get a message out to the people who oppose more investment in transit, what would you say? Well, I would say that um, first of all, the amount of the amount that we're investing in transit is not large compared to the amount that we invest in roads, and that an alternative to congestion is good for everyone. There are a lot of trips in the city that are very very difficult to make in a car, and that's not going to change unless we have unrealistically high tolling levels, and uh, I think if people give it a try, they'll realize that transit is superior for a lot of those trips. And in addition to light rail, what other changes to the transportation network would you like to see? At Seattle Transit Blog, we're very passionate about reform of the bus system. Um, Historically, the bus system has been oriented on one-seat rides to downtown, a commute-oriented structure. While it's very hard to move east-west through the city to use transit other times of day, and so on and you know that really makes it hard to live a car free lifestyle we would like to see a much more gridded transit system that allows arbitrary trips rather than just ones downtown so people can get rid of their cars which has great financial effects for them it has good impacts on congestion on transit use on the environment public health all the things that that and and the need for parking which of course is a driver of high housing costs and also is bad for the environment at the same time and do you have any comment on the Complaints that people would be spending a lot of money for something that they'll never get to use, given the time horizon? Well, I think that's the nature of being in a civilized society. Um, we always invest in projects. Somebody's going not going to live to see the end of that project. Uh, it's an argument against any long-term project anywhere. And if our ancestors had thought that way, we would be a lot worse off. Do you have any concluding thoughts? As long as we continue to make um, smart decisions and have smart people coming in from Amazon or from... UW dub or other places that tend to then, you know, release those people to the economy, I think will continue to thrive and move on to the next big thing and, and be big players in that as well. So as long as that's the case, we will uh, continue to grow and there will be continue to be demand. There's really no limits to what we can grow and achieve and, and how uh, amazing we can be become.
0: Martin, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate meeting you today. Thank you for having me. Next, you'll hear about the fascinating history and the future of the Port of Seattle from Port Commissioner John Creighton. I am here at Pier 69 with the president of the Port of Seattle Commission, John Creighton. John, thanks for joining me today. Good
2: morning. Thanks for having me. So why don't you start by telling me a little bit about yourself? So I am a lifelong Seattle area resident, grew up on the east side of King County, moved away for college, law school, worked for a while, worked overseas, worked in New York, worked in D.C., worked in L.A. Seattle is a beautiful place, great place to come home to, moved home about 16 years ago. I'm a lawyer in my day job and focused many years on doing international trade law related work. And so when I came home and wanted to get more involved in my community, the port uh, seemed to be a perfect place for me to land in terms of um, really being able to help shape my community. And so why don't we talk a little bit more about the Port of Seattle? Uh, What are its responsibilities, and what is your role as uh, president of the commission? Uh, So the port is a really fascinating organization. It's a huge economic engine for our region. It's very diverse. Um, We're one of five port authorities in the country that operates both a seaport and an airport. And within the seaport, we operate uh, cargo terminals. We operate a fishing terminal. We operate cruise terminals. We have three pleasure yacht marinas and a lot of industrial warehousing property. So we're very diverse and it impacts some 200,000 jobs in our region. And it's both on the industrial side in terms of our cargo operations, but also on the tourism side which is a growing part of our business in terms of our two cruise terminals, our pleasure yacht marinas, our airport, obviously.
0: Describe a little bit about your role
2: uh, as a commission. What kind of decisions you're responsible for? So the, um, uh, the Port of Seattle ports in Washington State are very... Um, I don't want to get too drilled down on the history of ports in Washington State, but it's a fascinating history. Uh, public ports in Washington State really came out of the progressive air movement, where... Um, In the 1800s, the city leaders in Seattle, in order to get the railroads, which were really the superhighways of the day in the 1800s, in order to get the railroad barons to build out to Seattle and not to Tacoma, not to Olympia, because whoever got the railroad would be the major city in in the region. So, the city fathers basically gave away the entire waterfront to the railroads. And so, the railroads built out to Seattle. They built rail all along the Seattle waterfront, and they basically had a monopoly not only on the railroads, uh, you know, the rail outlets, uh, but also the shipping lines, because they really controlled the waterfront. So, business owners in Seattle uh, really got up in arms, because they couldn't get their goods to market at affordable rates. And so, in 1911, the Washington State Legislature passed a law allowing, allowing communities to form their own public port districts and those are self-standing governments with their own tax, taxing authority governed by an elected board. So we're a five-member elected board elected by the citizens of King County. You know, it started out as a fishing terminal in 1914. It's grown to include cargo terminals, as I mentioned, the airport, cruise terminals, and it's responsible for about 200,000 jobs in our region, second really only to Boeing in terms of regional economic impact.
0: Going back to that impact, can you put some numbers to it or put some color to what kind of impact the
2: Port of Seattle has on the city itself? Well, so in terms of regional impact, uh, businesses that use the port generate some $18 billion a year in revenue for our state. Um, You know, again, that's some 200,000 jobs. A big percentage of that economic impact is really, you know, uh, when people I think think of the Port of Seattle, they think of the big orange cranes, you know, on Harbor Island and our waterfront, that's really the sort of the signature image of the Port of Seattle, those beautiful orange cranes popping up against the blue summer sky. But really the airport is responsible for seventy percent of our revenue, seventy percent of our jobs creation. And frankly, You know, we're sort of caught behind the eight ball now in terms of growth. In a normal good year, say before the Great Recession, passenger traffic at the airport grew 2 to 3%. And we've always been fairly conservative in building out infrastructure at the airport because anything we build... um, Some federal tax money supports it, but really the airlines are responsible for paying back the debt service on the capital projects we've moved forward on. So we've always, especially after 9-11, when the airline industry was sort of topsy-turvy, we were very careful about building out infrastructure at the airport. Well, now, last two years, uh, we've been the fastest growing large airport in the country. And that's partially because Delta has come into Seattle and grown in a big way, and grown their international traffic in a big way, and and their domestic traffic. And you know we have a wonderful hometown carrier in Alaska Airlines that's um, responsible for still over 50% of the flights out of SeaTac, and they're growing. But they're really growing, not only because of that competitive froth, but also because Seattle is growing so quickly. And so, last year we grew at 13% and as i mentioned in a normal good year typically we grow at two to three percent the year before we grew it close to ten percent this year to date we've grown ten percent so you know last three years um and if you use the airport you've noticed the long security lines and whatnot that we're grappling with it's a really you know it's a good challenge to have how to deal with growth but uh, because of that we're, we've embarked on about two billion dollars in capital projects that will probably take four or five years to, to come online. And so, unfortunately, dealing with this growth, the congestion at the airport and in security lines, unfortunately, will probably get worse before it gets better. But we're looking to add 35 new gates at the airport. We're looking to build a new international arrivals hall. Um, we're looking 20 years out. We'll probably need a whole new terminal, a second terminal, to deal with all this growth. and. Um, you know that uh, the staff is currently uh, plan or in the planning process they're developing what we call our sustainable aviation master plan well that's sustainable in terms of economic or en- environmental sustainability you know as um, you know we grow we want to be environmentally sustainable but that's also sustainable in terms of economic and facilities oriented sustainability last year we had forty three million passengers come through Sea-Tac C- airport. Uh, when I first started 10 years ago, I think we had 28 million. So we've grown you know, more than 50% in 10 years. Uh, and we're projected to grow to 60, 65, 66 million passengers a year by 2035. And to deal with that growth, as I mentioned, we'll probably need to build a whole new terminal. And additional infrastructure, w- which... Currently on the back of an envelope is projecting out to be ten to fifteen billion dollars in new infrastructure, and you look at SeaTac Airport, the physical acreage it occupies. It occupies two and a half square miles. Um, other big airports like a Dallas Fort Worth or a Denver International are over forty square miles. So we're one fifteenth the size of your normal large international airport, and. I think we're going to have some challenges in terms of can we really funnel that, all that growth in such a small footprint.
0: What are the options in terms of expanding the footprint or accommodating this growth?
2: Well, you know, I think our, um, the upper limit of growth that we felt or feel we can handle has changed over the years. Again, 10 years ago when I was a new commissioner, we had a much lower upper limit to our growth, but now with um, next generation air traffic control, with technology changes, um, that upper limit, I mean, we think we can, I mean, I think the upper limit when I was first a commissioner 10 years ago, we were looking at 45 million passengers a year. Well, we're already at, like I said, 43 million passengers a year. But we do think we could grow, we could handle the growth up to 65 million passengers a year. Um, but with the rate this region is growing, and of course, you know, when we're in good economic times, we think we'll never end, and that's not true. So, you know, Eventually, we're going to have a downturn, but just the trend lines are still up and up and up. So I really think with the length of time it takes this region, or really any region, to plan major infrastructure, we need to start looking now at a second regional airport to handle all this growth. You look at SeaTac, it's really interesting. Um, The growth constraints are probably... More so on the land side, getting people to and from the airport than the airfield side, frankly. Because technology has really expanded the, the growth band for the, the airfield. But just physically trying to get people onto the airport drive, into the terminal or off the airport drive, headed home. That I, re- I remember when I, was, I first ran for port commissioner in 2005, my opponent, um, who had strong environmental credentials, talked in terms of tolling the airport drive. And that was a very unpopular thing to talk about. And uh, I didn't support that back then. And, you know, people don't want to, people feel nickel nickel and dimed all the time. Why do you, you know, you have this public facility that's paid for in part by taxpayer dollars. Why should you have to pay, you know, $1, $2, $5 just to use the drive, you know, after your tax dollars supposedly are paying for this facility. But frankly, in terms of, People management, congestion management, that is something that w- we'll probably have to look at in the next few years.
0: And if you look ahead and you say the biggest hurdle to making r- what I call right-sizing our airport to the population and the travel, what is the biggest hurdle that you would
2: face in doing that? I think just the magnitude of, of infrastructure investment that th- this will require. Um, you, know, you look at um, constrained budgets these days, um, at the federal state and local levels, you look at people being fed up with being taxed. You know, of course, a lot of the airport is paid for through user fees, but even those user fees say the passenger facility charge that gets tacked onto every ticket as when you fly out of SeaTac, you pay $4 and 50 cents additionally on top of your ticket to help pay for infrastructure. Well, that has been held constant for the last 10 years. And, um, you know, four dollars and fifty cents doesn't pay for what it used to, and so airports across the country are asking Congress to raise the cap on that uh, passenger facility charge. And um, airlines don't like that because that adds, you know, additional cost to tickets when passenger when the traveling public goes to pay for their tickets. Uh, but frankly, it really should be the users of airports paying for airport infrastructure. So I think increasing the passenger facility charge or at least pegging it to inflation is the right thing to do but i think the biggest issue in terms of airport growth is how can we handle such a huge amount of growth on such a small footprint for i think you know maybe laguardia Uh, there's very few other big national airports that have such a small footprint that we do and um You look back in the 40s when the, I think it was the U.S. Army that looked first, you know, during World War II to site an airport in Seattle. They also looked at the Sammamish Plateau. You know, back in the '40s, there was nothing out on the Smathers Plateau. Now that's all housing subdivisions. So there's really few areas in the region where you can site a Greenfield Airport that both is close enough to a population center to make sense in serving that population center and easy to get to, but far enough from a population center that you don't have these neighborhood issues of neighborhoods getting up in arms with you know 747s flying 500 feet above their heads. So I think that's going to be a major issue. And then we haven't even talked about the seaport.
0: Yeah. yeah. Uh, so let's talk about the seaport. <laughs> sure. um, what kind of major changes have you observed at the seaport as it relates to the growth in the region?
2: The global shipping industry over the last 10 years has been really topsy-turvy as well. Uh, it was really impacted by the Great Recession. Um, you still have, I think, as an industry, the global shipping industry is bleeding red. There's been a huge, you know, like the airline industry, 10 years ago, there's now being a huge wave of, a cons- of a consolidation of shipping lines. And uh, because they used to, basically, if you're a shipping company, you buy these huge capital assets, you know, a ship that costs $100 million. And um, to pay the debt on that ship, you have to keep it sailing, have to keep it filled with cargo. And so, there's basically a race to the bottom between these shipping lines and who can price the, you know, the, their shipping rates the lowest, and then they don't make enough to pay back the debt, and then they get in trouble. So that's uh, sort of a perverse dynamic in the industry. Um, the problem is that most ports are public ports, and so we get caught up in, you know, especially when before Tacoma and Seattle entered into this alliance, we would compete with each other, for this business, basically using taxpayer money to subsidize these shipping lines just so that they'll come to our port. And that taxpayer money that was you know, basically used to sub- subsidize these shipping lines didn't really do us any good. It was all money shipped to, to Asia. So, uh, last year, the Port of Tacoma, Port of Seattle said, enough is enough. We can't continue this way of doing business. You know, other actors in the industry are changing the way they, they do business. We needed to change the way we do business in order to compete, in order, frankly, to survive. So we entered into an alliance with the Port of si- or Port of Tacoma. And we have a common, common management team that oversees and operates our cargo container terminals. And so in terms of you know, infrastructure investments, we make infrastructure investments that make sense for the entire region. Not, you know, two ports competing with each other, making the same investments in the same terminals. We have the political power, frankly, to be able to say go down to the state legislature and say, we really need, you know, this transportation package that the legislature finally passed last year, this fifteen billion dollar transportation package. We really need that as ports to remain competitive in terms of eastern Washington farmers being able to get their goods to the port and whatnot. So it's really helped us Remain competitive. Frankly, um, you know, with the competition, we have competition all over the place. Um, you know, f- from the East Coast ports through the Panama Canal, from the Southern California ports, and some of our bi- biggest competitors are up in Canada, Vancouver and Prince Rupert. So, by working together with the Port of Tacoma, we've been able to better, you know, shore up our competitive position and really turn around the tide. And as opposed to losing cargo, now we're seeing an uptick in cargo.
0: And has the influx of people and more people on the roads here in the Seattle region, has that affected the shipping lines from the port in a meaningful way? You know,
2: that's really a challenge for us. As the region grows, as the region continues to gentrify, particularly as people move back into the urban core, you know, the industrial port in Seattle, historically, historically, Seattle developed as a maritime city. So our port is right at the foot of downtown Seattle. Now, you know, if we were, if we were planning things all over again and had a greenfield port, that might not be the best place to put the port. But over the years, you know, over the past few decades, we've invested billions of dollars in transportation infrastructure, uh, the benefits, support, port, and we've invested billions of dollars in our terminals. And, um, you know, the maritime industrial community, you know, we look at Amazon and Microsoft and Facebook and, you know, a lot of the S- Silicon Valley tech companies moving to town um, You know that's all great it helps our economic diversity it helps our job space but i think there's a danger of sort of losing perspective on the maritime and industrial community the maritime industrial community still accounts for 30 percent of the city of seattle's tax base you know it's not the shiny new bobble but it's you know the person who's been there by your side through thick and thin and uh sometimes you take for granted um And so, you know, that thirty percent the tax base that the maritime industrial community provides pays for critical city services that we need as a growing city. So, you know, my uh, main message as a port official, and one thing we just try to hammer home all the time, is that you know we welcome all this other economic activity and economic diversity, but we really benefit as a region from this economic diversity. And we can't lose sight of that. We can't you know start just focusing on one sector or the other. And in fact, you know you have people talking about the old economy versus new economy. I don't think there's any such thing anymore. I mean the new economy has so permeated the old economy uh, in terms of, like take, for example the fishing industry, some of these new fishing vessels coming online. You need a full-time computer programmer or IT person to be on that ship. 24 uh, 7 because they have such complicated technology. Or, you know, say Amazon. I mean, that's a great tech- technology company and it's great that they're right here in Seattle. But, you know, to get their goods to market, uh, they need the old economy in terms of an efficient freight system. In fact, Amazon, I don't think it's been ri- widely public- publicized, but they're, they've bought a number of air cargo operations because um, they understand how important an efficient freight network is to their business. So as the region continues to grow, what's keeping you up at night? Um, good questions. A lot of things. I mean, you know, as I talked about before, can we handle all this growth through SeaTac Airport? And frankly, is that fair to the neighborhoods around the airport? You know, you look at Los Angeles, they have what, five different major airports in Los Angeles County. Number two, It's just, I mean, growth is a double-edged sword. Uh, I mean, it's benefiting us in terms of economic activity at the airport. And, you know, we're finally seeing sort of a bounce back at the seaport. But as the region becomes more congested, you know, shippers will be less really willing to come to our port. And in terms of, you know, it's good to see the urban core being reinvested back in. But the same reasons why it's great to have a port here, where you know two major interstates, I five and I ninety meet, and we have all this roads infrastructure, you know, that's for example, that's also good for people trying to get to a stadium or an arena, and hence the conflict we had recently with the city and the county wanting to site, you know, another arena, a basketball arena, on our major freight corridor.
0: So, if you could get a message to the people of Seattle about how and why they could help you achieve your vision for the port of Seattle and the city itself.
2: Uh, what would you say? I would say um, not to lose sight of the importance of maritime industrial activity to our city. It's not only a part of our past, but I believe it's part of our future. You look at maritime industrial jobs, they pay on average $90,000 a year, and that's 20000 more than the median, median job income in the region. Um, so it is part of our future, and we need to really pursue public policy that's able to balance a diverse economy. And are there any specifics
0: about the public policy that you would like to see that would help maintain this old slash new economy balance?
2: I think we shouldn't downplay the great career opportunities there are in the maritime industrial community, and we really need to do a better job of really exposing our young people to the opportunities and the fact that you can support a family on some of these jobs and uh, their great careers. Any concluding thoughts about Seattle's growth and the future of the Port of Seattle? You know, I'm really bullish. I think we do have a lot of challenges as a port and as a region, but they're good challenges to have in terms of how do we deal with growth, how do we channel growth in the most effective way that maintains our quality of life, but also provides economic opportunity for our population. You know, we do have challenges as a region, um, and, you know, economic times will not always be good. As I said, you know, the economic cycle is not dead, but I think we need to be making the right decisions right now in terms of public policy in order to pave the way for the future.
0: John, thank you for your service as president of the Port of of Seattle uh, Commission, and thank you for your time here today. Thank you, Jeff. That's all for today's episode of Seattle Growth Podcast. If you enjoyed hearing from John Creighton, please join us for Seattle Growth Podcast Live at the Impact Hub Seattle on Monday, October 17th. Commissioner Creighton will be a part of the panel discussion, which we will open up to audience questions. The panel will also include other civic and community leaders including Maggie Walker. Maggie is on the board of almost every civic organization in Seattle and has had a profound impact on the city. You will not want to miss this interesting conversation. Tickets are expected to sell out quickly, so act now. You can find more information at seattlegrowthpodcast.com backslash live. Next week on Seattle Growth Podcast, we look at the effect of growth on the city's utilities. I sat down with the director of Seattle Public Utilities, Ray Hoffman, before he recently retired.
1: So if you talked to me last October, what was keeping me up uh, at night was uh, being at the end of six months where we had a record low snowpack, a record warm and dry summer, uh, wondering when the fall rains were going to return to replenish our reservoirs. And the answer is they returned on uh, Halloween, uh, and in a three-week period, we went from the lowest levels in our reservoirs in the last 30 years to being at flood control stage.
0: You'll also hear from Larry Weiss, CEO of Seattle City Light.
2: As Seattle's electric system evolved over the, over time, uh, it, is, it, is, it has come to a place where it's got major stations that serve many distribution circuits. So our Broad Street substation, which is uh, down below Seattle Center, that, that's re- a capacity limit, and we have capacity limits in all these stations. So what happens is if we get too much growth and we need to build another station to provide more distribution circuits because the existing substations cannot handle it. And that's really at a place where we are.
0: I hope you will join me next week, and I hope to see you at Seattle Growth Podcast Live on October 17th.